0: Amen. Beautiful song. Great reminder of the goodness of Jesus. If you have your Bibles this morning, and of course I hope that you do, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Psalms, specifically Psalm 34. I wish I could tell you there was um, some very special way we arrived, what Psalm we're going to preach, or Psalm or Proverb in these uh, in these? Time that we go through Psalms and Proverbs in between books, but the reality is they are all good. Uh, all the Psalms I've yet to find a bad one, and so this morning uh, the Lord's providence brings us to Psalm 34, and so uh, we were in Psalm 37 last week, and I believe Psalm 15 next week as uh, Evan preaches uh, from from that passage. Uh, but This morning as we come to the 34th Psalm, a little bit of background about, uh, about this Psalm of David. It is written by David. We'll see in just a moment uh, during a very specific time of his life. We don't always know the exact details of what's going on in David's life when he writes these different psalms, as he is the author of the majority of them. But we know that Psalm 34 comes from a very specific time in David's life, as we'll see in just a moment. Uh, it is a Thanksgiving psalm, by and large. But we will see there is some, uh, also some wisdom in this, especially as we get to the middle of it. But uh, for, it is considered mainly a Thanksgiving psalm. As we said last week, there are many different types of psalms, and this one is uh, Thanksgiving primarily with a dash of wisdom, uh, as we'll get to. Now, I told you last week that there are very few acrostic psalms, and we just so happen to cover two of the eight. There are eight acrostic psalms in the Book of Psalms. Uh, this is also an acrostic, and so uh, all of the Hebrew alphabet is, uh, is found in water here in Psalm 34. And so it helps, if you remember, it helps memory, helps the people who are listening to and receiving the psalm to be able to, to, to commit it to memory, to know it, to be able to recall it. Because as we're going to see, it is a beautiful and rich psalm, one that would be uh, wonderful for even for us to remember, especially for us to remember. Uh, and so it is, uh, it is an acrostic. All the Hebrew letters there are found uh, that, that form it. And so it is comprised of two stanzas, we'll see. uh, From verses 1 through 7 is the first stanza. Uh, That first part, these first seven verses, are a personal testimony of David. He is specifically looking back on his life in this particular moment. Um, and then from 8 through verse 22 is a second stanza in which he uh, we see a shift even in the person in which it's written. Um, to He is specifically speaking to the people of God, as we'll see. And so that first part, he's rehearsing uh, his distress and his deliverance, if you will, uh, and it articulating his advice uh, as he is following and trusting the Lord. And the second part where he's, he is talking to the people of God. Now, let's get to kind of this background. If you will, turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel. Several books back to your left. 1 Samuel chapter 21. We see a lot of the life of David and Samuel. And if you remember much of the life of David, David is constantly on the run. He is running from Saul, if you remember. We see a lot of uh, a lot of David's life. A lot of I think for several years he was fleeing from Saul. Saul was obviously jealous of David uh, and his king, or that he would be king. And Saul being the first king of Israel, a lot of jealousy there. A lot of different reasons that, that Saul uh, pursued David, but indeed he pursued him. And this is one of those moments where he is pursuing David. And so we're just going to read these first few verses, uh, or these verses ten. Uh, Through the end of the chapter, there, 10 through 15, to kind of give us a backdrop of what's happening. And so, 1 Samuel 21, verse 10 And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to uh, Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. A common song we see in David's life. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of kiss the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. I just want you to catch that scene for a moment in your head. He is on the run. He ends up in this place uh, in Gath. And they say, oh, isn't this uh, king, isn't this the guy that Saul is going after and this kingship in whom we should be afraid of? And he's done all these great things. So he hears this and he's full of fear and he does all of these things. He acts crazy. And then Achish said to his servant, behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought me this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And so here is this backdrop But David is on the run from Saul and he finds himself in this place that he is in desperate need of refuge and protection or else he would be killed. He would be greatly harmed. Uh, in this Philistine city of Gath. And so fearing for his life, he pretended to be insane to avoid being recognized and captured. And eventually, as we know, because he lived to write this psalm and become the king of Israel, he escaped and found safety. And so this is where we find David. This is the the source, this is the backdrop of how he is writing this psalm as he has evaded death, as he evaded this, this hostility city of Gath and these men wanting to kill him. Also, this psalm, Psalm 34, is cited a couple times in the New Testament. We see specifically, let's just turn there real quick because I don't think we'll turn there later on. If you go to 1 Peter chapter 2, I believe it is, and 1 Peter chapter 2 that we walked through several years ago. In 1 Peter 2, 3, we'll just read the first few verses. So put away malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Likewise, Newborn like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it and you may grow up into salvation, the call of the believer to grow in salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so Peter is looking back to Psalm 34 as this invitation that we're going to see from David to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so we see the believers are those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And if you go to first Peter 3. Uh, 10 through 12, Peter uh, calls back a whole section, three verses there from. Uh, psalm 34 and then we even see uh, this uh, this prophecy of Jesus uh, that we'll see at the end of 34 that we see cited in John 19 or referenced in John 19 36 so this is an important psalm there's a lot going on there's a lot happening here it is a beautiful song of David and so now let us, uh, let us read uh, in its entirety these 22 verses and then see what the Lord has for us so Psalm 34 verse 1 This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lion suffers want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. He keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate righteous. the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let's pray, Lord. Thank you for this text that you bring us to this morning. Thank you for this song of David that he was able to sing in faith believing in you and trusting in you. So help us to do the same this morning. Help us to see Christ in these verses. And may he be exalted this morning. Keep me for error and make much of Jesus. In his name we do pray. Amen. So in this psalm of thanksgiving and with a dash of wisdom, the spirit of David calls us to three things in this psalm. The first of which is David invites us to magnify the Lord. He invites us to magnify the Lord. So you go back there to those first three verses. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let him humble let the humble hear and be glad. And he says in verse 3, "Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together." And so David invites us to magnify, to praise the Lord, to make much of God. This is the invitation from David we see this echoed even in Ephesians 5.19 when we are commanded by Paul through the Holy Spirit to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. It is an invitation to sing together, to praise the Lord together, to, to magnify God together. So we see this from David. We see this in other parts of Scripture, this command to magnify the Lord together. Go with me to... 1 Thessalonians, if you will. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. couple of verses here in 1 Thessalonians 5. We'll uh, pick up in verse 16 where Paul says to the, the church of Thessalonica, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing and give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And so we have a very clear reminder here of what God's will is for us to do these things, to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and to give thanks in all circumstances. And so David is inviting us to do that very thing, to praise the Lord, to magnify his name. He's inviting us in to that. So it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. And we too can bless the Lord at all times. What does bless mean? Here's a definition that I found helpful. To bless the Lord means to acknowledge his greatness, goodness, and worthiness of praise. It is an act of honoring and exalting God, recognizing his attributes and works, and expressing gratitude and devotion to him. By declaring his intention to bless the Lord at all times, David is committing himself to a continual attitude of worship and praise regardless of his circumstances. So that he is not circumstantially praising the Lord. But as we saw in 1 Samuel 21, in the midst of a very difficult time, in the midst of a, a very difficult time, he is praising the Lord. And he's inviting us to do so with him. He is blessing God. And we bless the Lord by what we do, by what we say, and even what we think. Our words, our actions, and our thoughts. We mean, go back to 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, and 18. We bless the Lord through prayer and thanksgiving of our words, that they should be rejoicing and full of praise. And so how did David praise the Lord? He praised him with his words. He praised him with song. He praises him with shouting at times. He praises the Lord with his words, and we too can bless the Lord at all times by what we say. We can also praise the Lord and do praise the Lord by our actions. We see this echoed in Matthew 5.16 where he says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your God and Father who is in heaven. So our not just our words, our blessing to the Lord, and it's how we bless God at all times, but even our actions and what we do. And so we see this call to, to, to good works, we see this call even as David's going to remind us later on in Psalm to do good. Now, we know we can't do good on our own. We know that we must, we must have the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of us, who even makes us able to do good. But this is how we bless the Lord is through our words, through our actions, and even through our thoughts. You can say, uh-oh, I was okay at words and actions because I can play the part. I can say the right things when people are around and I can do the right things when I know that folks see me. But my thoughts, that is my place. But Proverbs 23, 7, and the King James says it well. It says, As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Our thoughts are also a way in which we bless the Lord. It's not just what we say. It's not just what we do. But it's in what we think. In every aspect of our being, we should be blessing and praising and magnifying the Lord whenever it is convenient no it's not what it says at all times we should be doing these things we should be blessing the lord in our words actions and thoughts at all times our words deeds and thoughts should be a collective praise to the lord they should all be aligned there should not be a discrepancy in those three things And what we say and how we live and what we think, those should all be aligned for the purpose of growing in the Lord and blessing Him and praising His name and that others might see it, that they too might be invited into blessing the Lord in what we say, do, and think. But David here is not just magnifying the Lord on his throne, he is doing it on the run, as we said earlier. He is being chased He is being hunted. He is being targeted. And not just by Saul, but by others as we see in Gath here. There is a target on his head that so many are looking for him and want his destruction. David has endured much suffering and many trials, yet he blesses the Lord at all times. There in verse 1. At all times. We see in the New Testament continually. So there is not a season of blessing the Lord. There is not a day in which we bless the Lord. There is not a period of our life in which we bless the Lord. If we are His, then we are to at all times bless the Lord and magnify His name. And even to boast in the Lord, as we see in verse 2, it says, My soul makes its boast in the Lord. David wasn't magnifying himself. He wasn't boasting of his deeds. He had a lot of great deeds, right? Even from right out of the chute, he was doing great and admirable things that he could easily take credit for, but he boasted in the Lord. Jeremiah 9. Let's go there real quick. I can tell time is going to get away from me, so let's be real fast here. As we boast in the Lord, Jeremiah 9, 23, Thus says the Lord: Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts in this, let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So this is what we boast in. This is what David boasts in. This is what he invites us to boast in, is in the Lord and who he is. David invites us to magnify the Lord, to rejoice in the Lord, to bless the Lord. But secondly, David implores us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Not only does David invite us to magnify the Lord, David implores us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Now we understand this concept of tasting and seeing. It is such a basic human activity. Only by tasting something do we know that it's good, right? How many times have you seen mom cook something or your spouse cook something? or you have seen somewhere that that just does not look good at all? Mom, says, wait and taste. Taste and see. It's going to be good. Maybe sometimes even you smell it. That does not smell good at all. I know it doesn't smell good, but taste it, and it's delicious. Taste and see. And when we taste it, we cannot deny that taste, right? We know that that thing is good by its mere taste. And when it's really good, to be honest, we can't shut up about it, right? I know I'm guilty of that. When I find something I love and I find a restaurant, I will tell everybody. If you want to know what the best burger in town, the best fries in town, the best whatever, I can probably tell you. It's one of my few skill sets. I've tasted so much. I know what is good. But that pales in so much comparison to what David is saying here when he invites us, uh, when he uh, implores us rather to taste and see that God is good. David had experienced God's goodness, and thus he desires us to have that same experience. Pick up back in verse 4. It says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. And the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, David says, "Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him." David had experienced God's goodness, and he is inviting, he is imploring, he is urging, he is calling those who look to Him to taste, to taste and see that God is good. He is inviting all who would read this and all who would hear it to taste and see then indeed the Lord is good. And how was God so good to David? In a number of ways God was good, just to name a few. We see there in verse 4 where he sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Now it's important to note here this is not necessarily referring to the actual fears that he had, to the actual instances that he was referring to. Because God didn't deliver David from everything. He didn't deliver, He didn't take him out of every situation that was harmful to him. He didn't take him out of every situation that he might have feared. It was not the object of his fears, but the dread of those fears that the Lord saved him and delivered him from. We see this so much in Psalm 23 The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It makes me to, to, to lie down. As we see this, this calming nature, this comforting nature of the Lord. It's not that He saves us from all these situations, but He does deliver us from being uh, overwhelmed by our fears because we can look to and trust Him. David was delivered from his fears. Christians will face struggles. We will face adversity, sickness, pain, loss, and even death. Yet Christ walks us through every one of these moments. Secondly, he not only delivered him from his fears, but the Lord, uh, we see in verse 5, as we look to him, we are radiant. It says, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. So he doesn't just deliver him from his fears, he delivers him from shame. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces will never be the same that as believers we should look like David we should look as those who are full of joy and peace I love what someone said about radiance says radiant is a word found again in Isaiah where it describes a mother's face lighting up at the sight of her children long given up for lost can you imagine that what a mother's face would look like if she found her child who had been presumed lost. That is radiance. And using other terms, we see in Exodus, it tells of Moses' face shining as he came down from the mountain. and Again, in Corinthians, it relates to a Christian's growing in likeness to his Lord. In other words, radiance is delight, but also glory, a transformation of the whole person. When you have looked to the Lord, and you have the joy of the Lord inside of you. It should be evident. Doesn't mean you have to walk around with a goofy grin all the time. Although it may be, maybe you. Why you got such a goofy grin? Because God is good. Taste and see that He is good. But if Christ is in you, He should be on your face. It should be evident that the Lord is in you, that you are His and He is yours. We should be a joyful people. We should be a radiant people because Christ is in us. It's not only did God deliver David from his fears and deliver him from his shame, but we also see in verse 6 and 7 it says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. So he saves him from his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And the Lord, just as he saved David from his troubles, he can save us from our troubles as well. Now, we're not promised to be free from troubles in this life as believers. Quite the opposite. And we say often, remind, remind each other what Jesus promised his disciples, that in this world, you might have troubles. He says, no, in this world, you will have troubles. We should not be surprised as believers when we have troubles, when we have difficulties, when we find the enemy against us. Because Jesus promised it would happen in this world. You will have troubles, but Jesus says, take heart because he has overcome the world. So yes, there will be things that don't go according to our great plan. There will be things that, that do not seem to be good in our opinion, in our estimation. But indeed, it is good because of who the Lord is. David declares, "Blessed is the man who takes refuge, who runs to Jesus for their hope." And eleven, verse seven, the angel of the Lord, who we see uh, usually in the Old Testament, is the, the the person of God who is who is in the person who is in who has come to earth for a for for something. We see in Gideon especially where the angel of the Lord, who's the commander of the Lord's army, because this word in camps is kind of this military word. So we get this picture of ultimately Christ who encamps around us, and who delivers us, who helps us, who hears us in our time of trouble. This is our Christ. David implores us to taste and see that the Lord is good. He invites us to magnify the Lord. And thirdly, David instructs us to fear the Lord. He instructs us to fear the Lord because only does to say, Oh, taste and see the Lord is good and blesses a man who takes refuge in him. And then in verse 9, it says, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer and want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, oh, children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So David instructs us to fear the Lord. Now he's addressing, David is addressing those who belong to the Lord. He says, you saints, it's very clear in verse 9, that he is speaking to those who have placed their faith in the Lord. These of Israel who have, have looked to God in faith and belief, just as he's talking to us today, those who have placed their faith, their hope, and their trust in the person of Christ. Oh, saints, fear the lord for those who fear him have no lack his clear command to god's children is fear god is fear the lord he said well i'm not supposed to fear god jesus said i'll tell you who to fear don't worry about the one who can kill and destroy the body but fear the one who can destroy the soul Now we know as believers that we don't have a fear of dread over the Lord because He is ours and we are His. So we're going to see that David gives some clear instruction to how we are to fear the Lord. He starts with why we fear the Lord. Because God loves His people and always works for their good. He says, oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. We are His. We even see that in that simple address. We are His For those who fear him have no lack. And he gives this comparison. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good things. So he compares. Now, I may offend somebody, so don't even forgive me. I just may offend you. He cares about his people more than he does animals. And it's just very clear that the young lions, they're going to suffer. They're going to be hungry. And they're going to want, they're going to lack all kinds of things. But those who are His, those who seek the Lord, lack no good thing. There is no one, there is no thing that the Lord cares for more than His people. He cares for us. We are His. It says, we are His portion in Scripture. As we treasure the Lord, we are His portion. He loves us and He cares for us. This is the why of everything we do as believers. It's because He loves us and He loved us first. And He loved us most. He loves us. We are His. So he starts with why we fear the Lord. Because God loves His people and He's always working for their good. Always working for their good. Surely you don't mean always. Yes, God is always working for our good. Well, you don't know what's happened in my life. You don't know the difficulties that I've endured. You don't know the heartache and the hardship. You don't know the pain that I've suffered. Surely those things aren't good. Surely He's usually working for our good. But no, He's always working for our good. You can see what the psalmist says, Those who fear Him have no lack, no lack. Not a little lack, not some lack, no lack. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And this is reinforced in one of my probably all-time favorite verses that we say more than probably any verse here, Romans 8, 28. For all things, all things work together for the good for those who love and trust the Lord, who are called according to His purposes. Now, it doesn't mean that all things are good. Because sin exists. We live in a broken world. There are things that happen to us that are not good. And that we mourn over the brokenness of this world. We mourn over hurt and devastation and troubles and trials. Those things in themselves are not good. But God is working them for our good. And because he makes them good, then it ultimately is good. And that's a hard thing to, to believe if you haven't experienced it. Until you walk through That pain, you walk through that suffering? And on the other end, you're able to say that God is good. Maybe we won't even always understand how good comes from it. But if we believe God's word, he is working all of these things for our good. And there is nothing that we lack. Nothing that, well, preacher, I'm sorry to tell you, I lack some things in my life. There are some things that I need and I don't have them. But what scripture tells us, what the psalmist says, is that there will be no lack. So if you don't have it right now, it's not good for you right now. Because God is always working. He is concerned for two things, for his glory and our good. Yet we at times forget that truth. Or we don't feel that way primarily because of what we believe what good is so we must trust the Lord that he is always at work for his glory and for our good and that he is working all things for our good and that we lack no good thing and then if we fear him we will have no lack then David says that he will teach us how to fear the Lord it says, come, O oh children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And he gives two specific instructions, if you will. It says two things. Says, come, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? In verse 13, the first thing he teaches us is keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. So two instructions he specifically gives to how we fear the Lord, how we live a life that shows and demonstrates that we fear the Lord. One is that we speak no evil, that we speak no evil. And all through Scripture we see this command. That there's so much of God's Word that points us to not speaking evil and being careful of our tongue. Just one page over, maybe two pages, depending on your Bible. Psalm 39, Psalm 39, one says this, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. Wouldn't we like a muzzle sometimes? Wouldn't we say, hey, I need that muzzle. Can I go to lifeway.com and get me a a psalm muzzle? Because we need it. Cause it is so difficult but he says i will guard my ways i will guard my tongue that i might not sin against you i will speak no evil and we see this all through scripture and it's reinforced in the new testament we don't have to turn there for the sake of time but James 126 says if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart this person's religion is worthless so it says, if we don't, uh, if we don't guard our tongue, if we're not careful, if we're speaking evil, then our religion is worthless. So easy, right? Just don't sin in what you say. Let's train ourselves that we may never uh, misstep in what we say. The problem is, God's word says it's impossible. Also in James verse three, chapter two, or chapter three verse two, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able. To bridle the whole body. And hopefully you don't argue with the fact that you're not perfect. So we're not perfect. He says if we could bridle our tongue, if we can keep our our tongue from speaking evil, then we would be perfect. We know that's not the case. So we we need some way that we can be righteous without de- 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 uh, defaulting to our tongue, to looking to our tongue, to make us perfect. And we go to 1 Peter 2.22, where it says, Jesus committed no sin, so he committed no act of wrong, no sin, and then we often talk about that, but it even goes on more than that, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When you go back to Psalm 34, David even speaks of that deceit. He says, "What a man is there desires life and loves many days? He may be good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit." It is impossible for us to do that on our own. We need the power of God in our life to even fear the Lord, to even fear God. We need God in our life. It is Him who acts and works in us to do these things. So, as believers, we will desire to speak no evil. As we desire to fear the Lord and walk in Him and grow in Him, but ultimately we need Christ to empower us to do that, because only Christ is perfect. Only Christ has committed no sin and has never stumbled in His speech. But not only does He say, "Speak no evil," He also says, "Do no evil." Keep your tongue from evil at your lip and keep your lips from speaking deceit. Verse fourteen: Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace. And pursue it. So how do we show that we're fearing the Lord? How do we how do we follow the Lord and grow in him? One we speak no evil, and two we do no evil. Go with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter one, very beginning of Isaiah. Isaiah one verse sixteen. The prophet says this, Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's case. We saw this even in James, what true religion is. And so, David says and Isaiah says and all of God's word lines up and says that if we are going to fear the Lord, if we're going to walk in the ways of the Lord, not only do we not speak evil, but we don't act evil. We don't do things that are evil. We don't do things that are sinful. I know that's just elementary, John. I'm a Christian. I know I'm not supposed to do that. But yet we do, right? There There are times that we act that are not in accordance to the will and word of God. Job 28, verse 28 says this, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. So as God's people, we should desire to turn away from evil. This was David's desire. If we are going to fear him, if we are his people, if we are his saints, we will desire to turn away from evil and to do good. Romans 12, 17 says, Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And we see that in David's words to not just turn away from evil and do good, but to seek peace and pursue it. This should be the path of the believer to not just avoid evil, but to do good, to seek peace and pursue that. And we will be following our Lord. But there is a problem. Let's just turn to Romans real quick. Romans chapter 3. Just as we can't simply not speak evil, we can't just simply not act evil on our own accord. In Romans 3 verse 9 says this, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." we see this association. It's very clear that those who, not, um, those who speak evil and those who do evil do not fear the Lord. And we see that all of us fit that description. All of us. Not just those that we see on crime shows, not just those who are in jail, not just those people that we uh, know of their evil deeds, but even us, every single person, every Jew and every Greek is incapable of not saying and doing evil. So there has to be a way that we can be righteous. And that's where Jesus comes in. He is without sin. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin. Hebrews 4.15, he was yet without sin. Second Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. 1 John 3, 5 You know that He appeared in order to take away sins and in Him there is no sin. So it is only Jesus who has spoken no evil. It is only Jesus who has done no evil. Those who fear the Lord will desire to flee from evil both in what they say and what they do and desire to look to Christ because it is only through Christ do we become righteous. Our only hope And living such a life is to look to Jesus and receive His righteousness. And in doing so, we become, the Bible says, the righteousness of God. So keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Christ embodies this. Christ has done this. And only Christ has. And our only hope is to look to Jesus and then we might receive his righteousness. And that is not fair. That we receive his righteousness. Because all we gave him was a sinful, dirty life. And then David addresses how the Lord treats the righteous. How God treats those who are righteous. And so now we receive righteousness because of Christ. The psalmist knew that only those could be righteous for those who looked to him and trusted him. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, in verse 15, and his ear toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. God will be a just judge. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Again, David is driving this point home. He wants God's people to know that God hears them. And not only does God hear them, God acts on their behalf. God delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. And saves the crushed in spirit. Have you ever been brokenhearted? Have you ever been crushed in spirit? And to be honest, not everyone has been there yet. Not everyone has, has felt the weight of this. Felt the weight of having their spirit crushed. And know what it's like to be broken-hearted. But the Lord does. And the Lord draws near to us. Because he loves us. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers them out of most of them. No. Out of them all. And here's the prophecy that ultimately Christ will fulfill. He keeps all of his bones and not one of them is broken. And we see in John's gospel where Christ is being crucified and in that day, if you were crucified, it was a common practice that your legs would be broken for the crucifixion to, to end. But it says in John's Gospel that they did not break the bones. No bones of Christ was broken because He is the righteous one. He fulfilled every single prophecy that was said about Him from the Old Testament, every single one, even this one in Psalm 34, verse 20. Not a single one of His bones will be broken affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned David knew what it was like to have enemies he had no shortage of enemies and God's word is promising that they will be slain that those who hate the righteous will be condemned that God will be their judge and they will get what is theirs the lord redeems the life of his servants none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned so in this psalm of thanksgiving that has this testimony of david is pointing us over and over from the very beginning to the very end that those who take refuge in him those who look to the lord those who trust in him will not be betrayed they will not be condemned they will not be found guilty Because the Lord will save. In Psalm 34, we find David's testimony. But more importantly, we find God's faithfulness. God's steadfast love isn't conditional on our circumstances. His goodness does not fluctuate with our trials. God remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. David invites us to magnify the Lord. He invites us to taste and see His goodness and to fear Him. The psalmist's experience of God's deliverance and kindness is not exclusive. It is available to all who seek the Lord. As we reflect on the truths of this psalm, may we, like David, be people who bless the Lord at all times, who invite others to taste and see that the Lord is good, and who live in awe of our great God. Let's pray. Lord I thank you for this morning I thank you for this truth of your word thank you for this psalmist Lord who points us to you and ultimately points us to Christ to be the great fulfillment to be the only one who is righteous may we be reminded this morning of all righteousness that comes from Christ may we be reminded this morning Lord that our hope comes from you our help comes from you And there's one here this morning who's never looked to you and trusted you, Lord. When they have heard the clear gospel, that it is open to all who would believe. They look to Jesus, repent of their sins, and be saved. As we continue to sing, Lord, as we come to the communion tables, we have a chance to give in all of these things, Lord. I pray that we do so because of Christ. Of how much He loved us and loves us and will love us for eternity. In His precious and powerful name we do pray. Amen.